Thanks for tuning in to today's podcast. Please remember that all of the information in this podcast episode is limited to general information only. That means the information is not specific to you, your needs, goals, or objectives. So you should seek the advice of a licensed and trusted financial professional before acting on the information. And before you acquire or apply for a financial product, please read the PDS or product disclosure statement, which should be available on the issuer's website. Lastly, please keep in mind that past performance is not indicative of future performance. Doc, Anirban, welcome to the first episode that we're doing together for the Australian Investors Podcast, mate. This is going to be heaps of fun. This is going to be a lot of fun, Owen. Thank you for reaching out and, uh, you know, deciding to <laughs> deciding to at least bring me on to speak um, to the local audience here. Uh, so, yeah, I'm looking forward to doing this with you, mate. Yeah, yeah, mate. It's going to be heaps of fun. So, for listeners, this is something new that we're doing together. Um, we figured we both like to talk investing. We both like to talk companies, what's going on in the economy. But we haven't really been doing that much lately. I know you hosted, co-hosted the Triple M Money podcast with Scott, previously director of research at Motley Fool, now investment advisor at Seven Investing. And I'm always looking for people to talk to. So this is just like a match made in heaven, I think. So I'm, I'm stoked, mate. People will know you because you've been on the show before. You shared your story. Can you just maybe, for those people that are new to the podcast and to, are new to hearing you, just give us a, a primer on what you spend your day doing, how you invest, just at a high level, and then we'll go from there. Right. Oh, Owen, oh, you're going to make me talk for like 20 minutes. <laughs> I'm going to try to keep. I'm going to try to keep it brief. Yeah. So I'm 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 an investor now, but I'm not an investor or not even a finance guy. I'm not a CFA or anything like that. I'm not a trained investor. Investing was a hobby that I turned into a full time job. So I'm a computer scientist by training. Before. So as you said, you know, I was director of research here at the Motley Fool uh, in in Australia bef- uh, before I went uh, and joined Seven Investing, which is a U.S.-based company. And uh, before that, I I was actually a research leader at National ICT Australia here in uh, you know which well, we had many offices, but one of the offices was in Sydney. Before that, I was at IIT Delhi as an assistant professor. Before that, again, and prior to that, uh, assistant professor at uh, University of Calgary in Canada. So I have a PhD in computer science. I'm a computer, computer scientist by training. I've you know worked on new technologies and uh, consulted companies, written lots of papers, graduated students, supervised students, um, or, you know, worked on all sorts of cool things. You know, I worked on um, machine learning and things like that way back in the early 2000s, which is now like a buzzword every company throws around. So uh, sometimes that can be an advantage but yeah like somewhere around in the early uh, in in the early 2010s i really got serious about investing and i wanted to become an investor because you know after doing research for so long i thought you know i really want to do not do this as a side thing but as a permanent thing and you know that led to uh, finding a job after i think applying twice at the motley fool uh so they were kind enough to hire me <laughs> at, the, at the second executive that you know sort of starting as a research analyst then becoming a service advisor uh then becoming director of research and so on. that was an interesting journey and uh, yeah and then you interviewed me uh right around the time i think i, I was about to leave for uh, and that was great actually this is one of my most fun interviews uh, and i said most fun is probably not the right english uh but uh, <laughs> Well, it, was, it was fun because I've never done an interview with someone who's so, that well prepared. So uh, that was fun. It was great fun. And yeah, and then, you know, I've been doing, uh, I've been doing these um, 
seven investing live shows and you know doing podcasts and you know in, interviewing people a lot of that is uh, you know basically directed towards uh, you know international audience um, us canadian investors mostly but you know mostly international and it's it, you know i have not been speaking directly in, into the uh, with australian investors and you know people who are interested in finance and things like that so when you reached out i thought hey this is great we should do it yeah, it's it's um, we're gonna get a lot of like Australian focus, um, not only from me but from yourself as well for t- from doing it for so long, but also globally speaking. Yeah, I'm spending a lot of time interviewing people and covering stocks, covering companies, working with the team here at Rask. But we don't cover too many global companies. We cover a little bit, but not too much. So super excited to to hear you talk about some companies, to profile some companies, to tell us what's going on at the a bigger picture level, like globally speaking. So just in terms of what we we thought we could talk about going forward, obviously you've been on podcasts before, super successful at the Motley Fool, and now at Seven Investing. I think all of this is like leading us to hopefully tap into the zeitgeist of investors and just understand what people want to hear. And some of the things that we know people want to hear is what's going on in the markets every week. Does it matter? Does it not matter? Can you give us some ideas? Can you maybe even answer some questions? Can you you know do all these types of things? So we're going to bring more of that to this podcast, which is super exciting. So if you like the new format, reach out to, to Anirban and myself, and we're both on Twitter. What's your handle, mate? Oh, my handle is at 7amahanti. So... Cool. We're all in the show notes. And obviously, you can reach me at Owen Rask AU on Twitter. So let us know what you think. If you like the show, the new format, we'd love to hear from you. And so this is kind of like a collaboration and we're going to bring some ideas. We've got an example of what we're going to talk about. Um, in just a moment, we're going to talk about inflation, about some companies. And we're kind of just going to keep it fluid. Like you and I, we, we kind of sat down and we thought... We don't really need to prepare that much. <laughs> we'll just be able to talk because this is what we're doing every day, right? So, absolutely. Yeah. The idea was like, what do people want, right? People wanted to listen to how we invest. And then, of course, everybody takes their ideas, you know, what you hear from others and then applies it in, in their own context, for example, right? And then, you know, sometimes you want to talk about our experiences, like, you know, what, what are, you know, and this could be around, you know, if you have debt, how do we handle debt? Uh, you know, if we have expenses, how do we handle expenses? It's just, just experiences, what we are learning from our own uh, experiences, what we are hearing from others. We want to share that. And hopefully some of that is applicable of, of interest to others. So those are some of the things, you know, I'm very interested to talk about. And of course, we want to talk about market data. So, what, you know, what does uh, inflation mean? You know, what does the, you know, the, the job numbers mean, um, both here in the uh, Australia and both, you know, globally, you know, is the global economy heating up? Uh, sometimes I would be also keen to talk about the surging property prices. You know, it's my passion project to talk about surging pro- property prices. You know, we can talk about that. It wouldn't be a podcast without property. <laughs> <laughs> it wouldn't be a podcast without property. And properties, you know, Australian property is $8 trillion worth. It's larger than the stock market by a factor of like what four, uh, and at the rate it is surging, it's probably going to be like larger than many other stock markets. <laughs> so it's definitely worth talking about and thinking about, and what does that mean? Yeah, and then we'll of course you know time to time share ideas like you know stuff that you know we think is intriguing, interesting, and then some in, maybe even you know uh, you and I can chat a little bit about you know business models and uh, you know why do we like that company, why do we don't like that company that, that much, and things like that. Yeah. 
I think there are going to be some many, many instances where we might disagree respectfully on companies. And I think that's where it's heaps of fun, right? Because you come at it with a totally different lens to myself. And I think that for the listeners benefit is, is going to be great because they'll be able to make the decision based on what we're saying from competing perspectives. One of the things, and let's just jump into it then. One of the things, why don't we start at the top, top down? Uh, probably not how we invest, but let's just do that anyway. Inflation. So we just did a quick Google before we jumped on. And inflation, we're talking out of the US in particular, seems to be sky high, at least by, say, the last decade standards. I've got some data here that shows, you know, April 2021, 4.2%, May 5% above expectations. I guess first question to you, mate, is what's driving it and what are you making of it? Like, has that changed anything for you? Yeah, you know, this is a fantastic question, right? And it's, this is really important for us as investors because, you know, if inflation is running hot, eventually all the beautiful low interest rate that we, everyone has gotten used to is going to disappear, right? The rates have to go up because otherwise you have hyperinflation. So uh, if that's going to happen, that has an impact on company valuations, right? Because, you know, basically valuation is a discounted cash flow of a discounted, you know, some of the future cash flows, right? And the discount you're, you're going to apply should change based on the interest rate, you know, the risk-free rate, as we call it, right? And the risk-free rate going up would basically mean the you know future cash flows are worth less today. So that basically means the valuations are going to come down. Mm-hmm. Uh, so the, this is, I think, very interesting, very important. I think I guess very very interesting, important juncture. At the same time, as you said, you know, these numbers four or five percent, like. You know, central banks were you know, were dying to see two, three percent. You know, somewhere between two and three percent, and they couldn't get it there. And now, all of a sudden, you know, the, this pandemic has happened, and post-pandemic, we are seeing these crazy, crazy high numbers. So, uh, what's the reason? You know, I'm not an economist, as I've already said, but I read about this stuff, and I read a very interesting paper from a bunch of economists written for the White House. Actually, the, you know what? This is this is a hot tip. White House has a bunch of papers that are eminently readable, <laughs> and they're written surprise, by they're, they're written by people who are basically experts. And they one of the things that they excel in is writing things that really make it easy for people to understand. And this one paper talked about, you know, uh, talked about a couple of you know things like toilet paper short supply. You would never think toilet paper short supply should happen, right? But why does it happen, right? It happens because these are made in really tall buildings with really crazy investment of, you know, close to $4 billion or something like that (laughs) to make a toilet paper plant. And what happens is you run these uh, systems at 92%. And because it takes a lot of space to store these things, stores don't store them. And it's basically just in time delivery. What happens is if people hoard it, then this just in time delivery breaks and there's only so much slack left in the system to ramp up production. So it takes a while for production, which results in, you know, a crazy, say, um, aftermarket for things like, you know, toilet paper, right? And and nobody, everybody who's who's in this business knows that we're not going to go and put another three, four billion dollars to build a plant for for toilet papers because this is this is a transient demand thing. The same paper goes on to talk about um, the the automotive industry as a whole, right? So what is crazy is that for every car that is made, there might be 30,000 suppliers that are involved. <laughs> this is wow. crazy. That, if you think about yeah, the right. volume of suppliers involved, that is crazy. And all you need is one weak spot or one weak link 
to cause everything to sort of fall behind, right? So semiconductors have been a big deal. That's going to say, Everybody yeah. needs, yeah. So everybody needs semiconductors. And if there's a short supply of semiconductors, that's going to ripple through. And these things will take a while to actually sort it out. It's not that they can't be made. It's not that they're in, you know, there's a high demand. There has been a displacement of demand and supply because things were turned off. This is the amazing part of turning off economies, right? When you turn off an economy, when you shut down stuff, it shutting down is like a switch, <laughs> turn off, lockdown, shut down, done. Turning it back on though is not a switch, right? And then because, you know, we depend, you know, Australia might depend on China, we might depend on Korea, which might depend on Thailand, which might depend on somebody else. All these switches don't go on at the same time. Mm. So there's this ripple effect that's, you know, that's working its way through, which means prices have gone up because, you know, it's basically supply demand dynamic at play. Do you think then, so I'm, I'm hearing all of this. Do you think then that this is more a transient thing? And what I mean by transient, so markets tend to focus on like one day, one week, and they come up with head, headlines like bloodbath and whatever. But when I say transient, what I mean is like, is this inflation then in your opinion, because it's in the system in these bottlenecks, is that something that's six to 12 months? And then we see inflation in 2022 back down to normal levels once it's business as usual. Uh, because, you know, I mean, I know it takes a long time if you were to build another se- semiconductor. Let, let's use semiconductors. It takes a long time to build a new plant, like $20 billion, say. That's probably a different example because that's, a, in my opinion, at least, that's a structural thematic. Like we need more semiconductors. Is, I think that's fair to say. But we probably don't need a lot more toilet paper. So there's probably not going to be a massive ramp up in supply in 12 or 24 months. But do you think as a as a bigger picture then maybe in 2022, inflation returns to normal and we're not even asking the question, are rates going to go up? Does that make sense? Yeah, that makes – actually, that's a brilliant question because, you know, you're touching on two completely different but important aspects, right? And actually, you can answer even without going into toilet paper. I love toilet paper because, you know, there have been toilet paper shortages even in places like Costco. So, <laughs> um, and there have been lots of memes going around about toilet paper. Well, let's put toilet paper aside. There is no doubt that we need more semiconductors. But the question is, what type of semiconductors do we need, right? So, like, you know, the state-of-the-art semiconductor right now is like a 5 nanometer thing, which basically means that each chip is like a five nanometer type of, you know, transistors using these five nanometer transistors, right? The state of the art is then probably going to go to three or two or something like that. We need investments in those areas and that's already happening, right? So there are those exactly $20 billion investments that, you know, be happening with this crazy high-tech technology that is going to propel the next generation of chips. Those are the chips you're probably going to see in the new iPhones, you know, in a couple of years, right? That's happening. That's needed. The shortage right now for chips is on stuff that's really cheap, that is required in mass. It might be things like, okay, is your brake fluid like below the level? It's the brake fluid indicator chip. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that that is not available. Is the you know, is your headlight broken? That is the chip that is not available. It's like it's really mundane stuff that's not available that you would think is available, should be available. But it's you know, because if we have optimized the global supply chain to such an extent that you know there are probably few people making these things in the in the scale of like billions, right? And when they, you know, had to shut down and they you know, their workers have been displaced and therefore the workers have not come back to work. Well, 
it is just taking time. So I can't see people paying gazillion dollars for these very simple chips <laughs> or these, you know, the lowest of the lowest. Like, I mean, if 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 it if that was permanent, then I would expect a chip factory for those things right here in Sydney. <laughs> like, you know, we would build one here because there's there's gonna be a lot of margin in it, right? So right now I think you know prices are going up because people are competing. You know, GM is saying I want it, Ford is saying I want it, and the supplier is saying, Hey, I can't give you both. I'll take a little bit more money. I'll give it to whoever is paying me more. And the suppliers are making hay right now. But I think this has to normalize. This is not a technology delimited or a production delimited. It's a completely circumstantial situation. Yeah. And I think coming out of downturns, you have you almost always have some supply in the system, some uh, like supply constraints somewhere in the system, because as you say, it's all on the margin, right? And once one, you know, once one, you can't just instantly just put the domino back the other way and say it's all standing up now and everything's fine and working. Okay, so because so I have competing thoughts on this. One of them is that I can't see inflation staying at four percent or five percent for the rest of twenty twenty one. I just can't. I just can't see that. But then the other side of me is I'm hearing what other people are saying and saying, you know, maybe this this extra money is enough now with you know the tap getting turned off for QE slowly. Maybe that is enough to get some inflation back in the system. Yeah, on the first part, like I don't have a good feel really of like, you know, so whether it's 2021, we see it, it going down. Like the lumber prices, for example, have started going down. The lumber prices had gone up like oh, really? crazy because, you know, every, everybody in America is also buying houses just like, you know, the, the house buying craze has finally, you know, <laughs> moved to the other side. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, so there was there was a lumber uh, like shortage, yeah, um, I remember, and that pushed up the prices. You know what I think really is the problem with inflation. This is my guess, and again, I am no economist. My guess, the problem with inflation is that because we have a global market, and we basically push towards like basically towards the least min- minimal cost production that we can find for stuff that is basically can be commoditized, right? Yeah, like comparative advantage. Yeah. Competitive advantage. So I think because of the global, globalized economic um, setup we have got, I think it's very difficult to get price increases because if if the price is to increase, somebody's going to build something that is going to try to compete and therefore push the prices again back down. That's part of it. The other thing is I think technology is, is basically going to push prices down. Technology is a deflationary thing, you know, like, it used to cost people a lot of money to travel to work. Now people are working via Zoom. So, so you know, it has a deflationary sort of effect. Um, it has an expansionary effect as well because it and it brings a larger number of, say, work, workforce into play, right? But it has a deflationary effect at the same time. The, you know, the other interesting thing is that if you think about, actually, if you think about the byproduct of, say, COVID, people have actually figured out now that you can actually run hybrid offices, right? With office, people going to office and people working remote. That has a huge impact on hiring, right? Because previously, if you think, thought about a tech company, they would have to pay a lot of money to hire people because they were in California. Well, now they can hire the same brain in Colorado and pay half the price. So that's just an example, right? I mean, you take an Australian example, instead of paying someone in, in Sydney, you just pay someone in Dubbo. Yeah. Right. <laughs> and yeah. and all of a sudden, you know, the cost of living goes down. You don't have to pay as much. So actually, I don't know. I don't think you can get even significant wage growth. You shouldn't get significant. You shouldn't see significant wage growth or you know, and other inflationary pressure because technology is actually distributing workforce in some ways. So that's what I think. And I tend to agree. And I think that's the thing that a lot of people probably have underestimated. 
for the past 10 years is the deflationary nature of technology because you think about it, we can do the same things we can produce with less. So effectively, like, you know, we automate stuff that we might necessarily had to compete for from or go and buy from something from somewhere to do that task for us. Um, I think about this every day, right? Like even in terms of the change that's happened from, you know, getting your, your laundry done in the past. Now we washing machines, you know, all of these things that we, we can do instead of, you know, paying for, I don't know, some sort of telephone service. Now we've got it in our pocket and we carry it with us and it's basically free to make a call to someone these days. And so there's heaps of, I guess, you can see the value being created, but it's also taking friction out of the system, which then has that lower that lower impact in, in terms of in terms of pricing. I guess then if we just tie this in a knot for people that are listening, has the inflation you know, the, the fears, I guess, is what you could call it. Because I'm just looking at, you, you mentioned at the start, you mentioned um, yields on, um, I'm looking at 10-year treasuries in the US and the yield since, uh, when's this, mid last year has gone from 0.57% to 1.5. Here in Australia, the 10-year has gone from 0.8 to 1.5. Has that changed the way that you invest? So has it changed your outlook for your portfolio's composition or the companies types of companies you look at like has that impacted you in any way um not really because you know my my like i'm the type of investor i invest for like these um a multi-bagger type of investments i'm looking at companies that are going to be several times their size if i am if i'm then valuation is very is a small component uh almost sometimes a very tiny component of what i do and the type of companies i look at what i'm really looking for is that if you can if at a very high level, a very high level thesis would be if the gross profit of the company grows exponentially over time, then the share price returns for that company also grows exponentially over time. Now here, time could mean 10 years, 20 years time frame, but that's sort of, and these companies are often mispriced because people just don't think that way people are, you know, it's very difficult to see displacement, right? So when I'm looking at companies that get displaced, displace other existing incumbents, it is just very hard to imagine that world and that that creates an opportunity, right? I mean, it's like thinking that you can go back to Apple. I use Apple as an example because people can identify with it. But, you know, you go back to 2008, it would be very hard to imagine a world where the Apple iPhone and the Apple ecosystem would command 90% of the profits in that type of market, even without actually winning 90% of the market, right? And it would be unimaginable to think that, you know, phones from Nokia and things like that wouldn't exist, right? But I mean, that's sort of the displacement. And so it's basically the step change that comes from companies that solve important problems or um, companies that, you know, change how things are done. So, so those sort of companies are typically not affected by interest rates and so on. I mean, they're minorly affected, but they're never really fully priced in because, again, you know, and it doesn't mean that I get it all the time right, right? I'll get stuff wrong, but that's okay. For the stuff that I get right, then it will make up for the stuff I get wrong. How about then, so the Apple's a good example because it's cash flow positive. It's a monster in its industry. How about something that's earlier stage though? You know, if those cash flows are further out into the future, because I, I becomes a bit more sensitive then um do you do you think about that like i, I say take, take i know you're gonna we're gonna talk about this like a hundred times on the show but take tesla two years ago right where was that an inflection point with cash flow yeah 
So with, with te- Tesla, Tesla is interesting. You know, Tesla people would say doesn't make money, but Tesla actually makes gobs of cash flow. So I mean, Tesla is an interesting company because it's 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 a mindset issue there, right? With Tesla, the thing is that people think well, automotive companies don't have high margins, right? They can't have high margin, and therefore you know, and you need to invest lots of money to build these plants and so on. So yeah, you know, like I mean. You could always look at adjusted profits and look at, you know, EBITDA, so earnings before interest, tax, depreciation, and amortization, and you'd see that that will be leading indicator to sort of gap profits because, you know, they're investing ahead of the cycle, um, ahead of those cash flow coming in because they are building these plants. So if you account for those depreciation and amortization, then you'd, you'd see, okay, this company had actually started making operating profits. And then those operating profits turned into gap profits and cash flow profit, you know? So, so there's that. And, and then sometimes it's like, you know, again, as I said, it, you may not be right, right? So I invested in Tesla in around uh, 2013, which was after the Model S was out, but before the Model X was out. At that point, I think there was a... Uh, investment based on expectation that there's going to be, you know, the the story was always there. Like, you know, the plan, the grand plan was always available as a blog that we're going to build this, then we're going to build this, then we're going to build the Model 3, then we're going to build, you know, like they didn't name it, but they said, okay, we're going to build progressively more mass market vehicles, right? And so you could have looked at that. And so, you know, but at that time, the company was also maybe a $20, $20 billion market cap company, right? It was not a big company. So, you know, you could take a small position and then see what happens and then execute uh, and then add along the way. I added a lot when there was all these things about you know Tesla going bankrupt with the Model Three uh, ramp. Uh, but at that time, the thesis was you know you could just there's a very qualitative approach to investing, which was I was one of the people among the 400 or 500 thousand people who put in a deposit for a vehicle without even having a look at how it is. Just seeing, a de- just seeing a video feed, okay, this is the car we have made. I hadn't touched it, I hadn't test driven it. This is the first car I ever drove, I've, I've ever bought without test driving it, right? And I can also say it's the best car I've ever bought <laughs> because, you know, it's just an amazing piece of technology. So, so, you know, that is, you know, when that is a sign, right? When people camp, that is the thing that we saw with Apple, people camped to get the iPhone. So that is a crazy affinity, so brand power means a lot and it gives you a license to try things that other companies can't it's there's a lot of i think investing can be a lot of quantitative things right and qualitative things like and sometimes you have to weigh the qualitative things appropriately at least that's what i think but you know i'll I'll be keen on your take on this well this is the thing right like so i'm looking at the the first quarter of 2020 and i'm looking at the free cash flow as they disclose it which is just net cash from operating activities minus capex and it was say in first quarter 2020 negative 900 million but then you you go to the fourth quarter, it's 1.9 billion positive, right? So if we think about this, then going back two years, or even right back to 2013, most people when they value these types of things, they're waiting for that. They wait for that in their forecast, and then they do their cap M. They get their their cost of the risk free rate. They get their market risk premium, and they chuck that in a, into a model and get a, a discount rate. And they say, based on the free cash flow, this is the answer. Um, but you're saying, well, maybe let's focus on EBITDA or gross profit and that affinity, that kind of that qualitative research far ahead of the curve. And that is what will lead to free cash flow. Yeah, but I'm also, I'm even abstracting it further saying that you don't need to do the EBITDA. 
<laughs> so, uh, like, I mean, that sounds very odd from coming from someone you know who you know works in the stock market. Saying, you know, I, I, that's actually the last thing I even think about doing. The reason is, like, I mean, you could have abstracted out and said, okay. Are EVs going to happen? There's a certain probability of that happening. But let's assume, you know, you'd have to have certain confidence EVs going to happen. If EVs are going to happen, what's the total market opportunity? Okay. Who is the market leader at that point? And you could make a, you know, some educated guess as to whether or not. And then people have said this last number of times. Oh, but those, com- the competition is coming. The competition has been coming for 10 years, 12 years. And right now, I think, Tesla is the leader and everybody else is trying to catch up with the competition called Tesla, right? And and the, and the reason for that is, I think the fundamental mistake is to assume that just because it's a vehicle, it's a vehicle. It's like calling the iPhone the same as a BlackBerry or the, calling the iPhone the same as uh, as a Nokia phone. They're not. There's a fundamental different approach to to building these things. So I think there's a lot of these quantitative things, if you, qualitative things. And if you think of these qualitative things and you think, okay, the market is huge. If you can, if you can corner the premium sec- segment of that market, premium segment plus something like a Toyota, that's a huge, huge opportunity. Then you could look at things saying, okay, but they're not just making vehicles, right? They're doing autonomy. Um, they're doing energy. And these are all basically different types of call options that we have in addition to what the other automotive companies are doing. And the other automotive companies are not doing that, right? Many of the automotive companies are relying on technology, for example, from Mobileye, which is now owned by Intel, right? So if automotive, if autonomy is going to result in a lot of cash flow, well, that cash flow is not going to go to a bulk of these automotive companies because they're going to go to then to Intel or and, or, and Mobileye, right? So so I think that's the sort of logic. And there's a, there's an ex, you have to have an expectation that things may not work out. There have been plenty of cases, like I've invested in 3D stocks where stuff was going to be, you know, printed and, you know, you're going to have your printed God knows what, like your sneakers, and it didn't work out. That's okay. It happens, but you need, you know, you need, if you have a couple of these things that, you know, 30 bag, 40 bag, 50 bag, you know, 50 times your initial investment. And along the way, you also invested, you know, you just need a couple of these to change your life, really. Like, I mean, literally change your life, right? So, I mean, this is a very different style of investing and it takes a while and it takes time. I, I think you and I philosophically align very well. Uh, so I'm just like throwing out things. But one of the things that always happens is people think, like I always think, well, why can't more people invest in just the great businesses? Like, why don't more people just do that? And I almost always it comes back to like temperament and understanding. Like, and I think you get that. It, you need to experience, obviously, but I think the temperament comes through understanding what the business does and understanding how that fits with your philosophy, right? Like, some people, like yourself, understand the industry. You go deep on these companies you accumulate over time whereas some people just don't have that tool set i guess do you do you think about it that way like do you think about it as this works for me because i am this person or do you think everyone can can invest that way you know i actually honestly think everyone can invest that way but i think here's the thing though does does everyone need to invest that way is i think the is the is the larger question so this is one of the things i like about actually what we do at seven investing is we've got seven different people who pick stocks right and actually the seven different stocks are different because each person is different. And I think I've come at, I used to get really angry <laughs> when, I, when I couldn't get someone to understand my view. Like, oh, damn, you don't see it. How do you not see it? I mean, you know, you don't see the Tesla is like, you know, like in 2018, I was like, okay, this is like, okay, this is like obvious money-making opportunity. You guys don't see it. Really? Do you not see it? Like, you know, I'd get angry at that. But then what I, re- I think the thing to realize though is that just 
people are wired, I think, differently. You can teach yourself to some extent, then you have to sort of follow your spirit. And here's the other thing, right? Do, like, I mean, it's great. Like, let's say you, you know, let's say Owen is compounding his money at 25%. That's fantastic. That's better than compounding your money at 15%. Mm -hmm. But maybe somebody's just happy with 15%, right? You know, that's, (laughs) again, that's, I mean, 25% would be better, because it's more, but is 15% not enough? 15% is probably enough. Like, you know, so I have, I have this philosophical view that as, as people who work in the market, we think, you know, we need to beat the market and things like that. You, need to, you know, but then I ask this question, what is the market? What's your definition of the market? Is it the Australian market, the world market, the US market? Which market, right? I don't know. Tell me, right? So in my mind, I've always, you know, thought that you should have a threshold, of what you want to achieve, which helps you achieve some other larger goal, right? So like in my, if I get 9% plus, I feel very happy because my threshold always is, well, the other alternative is to put your money in some bank account or something like that um, or get some yield. So I need to, you know, get a little bit more than that. And, and 9% sort of seems like, okay, at that pace, it will satisfy my, so I think it's, I think in individual investing style is, is something that people need to realize, right? Mm. And that's what I think, you know, that's, I've changed my view, but I, I also think that you can learn, right? Different styles. So, you know, people can adapt based on what you tell them. And I think, you know, Charlie Munger touches on this a lot when he talks about envy being the only one of the seven sins you don't need to, you don't need to worry about because you get no pleasure from it. And I think that's one of the key things that has changed my mind speaking to so many people over such a long period of time is you don't have, just because you invest in Tesla. I might be philosophically aligned with you, but my process might be slightly different. So it doesn't matter if I choose something else. And again, like we speak to you and I speak to a lot of people that are quote unquote value investors who make their living buying, you know, beaten up stocks. And that's fine too. But um, yeah, I just, I, I always just come back to it because I see, like, I, I know you're, you're a fan of David Gardner and he is similar. He's like at the extreme end, right? Like he's right up there, like, picking these great companies really early. And I just think to myself, it makes so much sense what he's doing and he's got a track record to prove it. Why don't more people do that? But hey, we, we actually went through, this is how meant to be our introductory episode, Anubad, and we've gone through <laughs> 15 minutes and we got stuck into Tesla and we've already got stuck into Apple. So I feel like maybe we should talk about this something This is going to happen often and we're going to go sidetracking. <laughs> I'm sure that it will go somewhere dark, like it will go to Facebook. Uh, but uh, let's, let's just bring it back home. Let's, let's couple, there's a couple other little things that we wanted to talk on the end here was this the thing that's unfolding in australia which is bizarre to a lot of people and to me included is newix so for those people who don't understand what newix is it's a recently ipo'd company here in australia my understanding on is it's basically using like pattern recognition over data and information to bring insights so companies like asic would use this to identify you know any type of kind of common trend in some information that they're analyzing for audits and that type of thing. But basically it sounds great in theory. And then when you think about all the actors that are above it and kind of what's led up to the IPO, it then just went south really fast. Yeah. yeah. Let's just riff on that. For a <laughs> so I, I was actually, you know, when I looked at the company first, when the IPO came out, I, I really liked Newix because it seemed like, a company that, you know, think about it, it has great customers, right? It's got ASIC and it's got a bunch of, you know, it's got the ATO, I think. And it's, it is any company which wants to do forensics on data might be interested in what they're doing because they're basically looking at desperate data sets and trying to make sense of it and basically help identify things like fraud and, you know, malintent and you know, things, stuff like that. That's stuff that is 
super important for many companies and stuff that you know moves the dial in a big way right so if if you're trying to uncover fraud that you know uncovering it and stopping it is 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 worth millions so and and their customer set they have blue chip customers so and that blue chip customers revenue in hundreds you know close to 100 million dollars you know not many tech companies in australia have that revenue right so that's another check mark for me like you know that that's in my mind 100 million dollars sort of like a is a mark which says that you kind of have you know made your place and you are going to be okay <laughs> because before that stuff is uncertain you could be at 50 million and you could become a 500 million dollar company you could be at 50 million and you could disappear or you could be at 20 million and you could disappear right and i know in a lot of companies which have zero revenue have like billion dollar uh, uh, market caps they shouldn't this is almost seems like but that's the case but I'm putting that aside i think they had they had a they sold an import they're in an important area with blue chip customers they had solid revenue they had good guidance not growing that fast you know but profitable at least on an operating basis at least so all of those things are check mark i think what has unfolded though is a lot of underlying stuff that i think was not clear to anyone including people who participated in the ipo or people who participated post ipo that is you know what was going on with the previous ceo and the current ceo what's going on with the options you know where they're trying to you know present the results in a way uh, that maybe did not reflect certain things or did reflect certain things but you know I'm not saying again that they did anything wrong but i mean uh, maybe the interpretation of what um constitutes recurring revenue versus what is not recurring revenue or you know one time revenue was not clear there's a lot of stuff that happened and then there's been this management turmoil in this company right there's been basically like you know revolving door type of scenario so yeah like i mean these are stuff these are things that happen unfortunately to investors like you know it, it, there's nothing there's no way you can really avoid it perhaps the one sign that you know maybe was worth keeping an eye on and i sort of ignored it was the um the fact that the previous i believe the ceo was suing the company for some stuff to do with the options that were supposed to vest and you know didn't vest or didn't you know or options on the stock and the stock had split so his basically the options should also equivalently split was the argument and 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 therefore you know he was out of pocket by millions of dollars right so i think it's this has turned into a big like mess right and now there's a lot of questions going around stuff like this unfortunately happens but his my underlying feeling still is that the tech and the company is actually okay it probably needs new pair of hands and you know new direction and and often the problem is that when you are a private company and these things didn't happen it would be okay right or these things to be under the radar and the problem with the public company is that if these things happened and they got so much publicity out of it or negative publicity or bad publicity that might actually affect customers that's the risk right customers might think okay well what's going on you know should we continue using it and and that could be a problem right and that will also have an impact potentially could have an impact potentially on sales forward sales so yeah that's my take on that i guess i guess the irony is right that asics investigating uh, the company now for potential um, insider information that led to the brother or allegedly led to the brother making a profit based on some information that the company should have known and should have disclosed to investors being that revenue 
was not going to be achieved in the, as in according to the prospectus forecasts. And so now ASIC is investigating the very company that it uses to collect the data uh, on these types of companies. So I find that fascinating and, and That's ironic. ironic, huh? <laughs> yeah, yeah, totally. <laughs> and so, but you're right, you know, this is so, for a company like this, the good thing about it is that it is, as a deeply embedded tool, right? Like it's in yeah. the workflow of analysts and auditors, right? It is in that workflow. Yes. So it is hard to rip out. You have to have a piece of software that can come in and solve that problem, that very important problem and yeah. do it pretty easily, right? But how, yeah. how how long does that take? Is there one out there? You know, who knows what happens here? But I think it, it has. it's clear, right? They, I think they took too long to disclose what was going on at the management level. And even now, you know, there's allegedly search warrants and things being issued. I feel like my gut feel is that it could still be a while before we get any true sense of like where what's the trajectory of the business, who's in charge, which is a shame because it seems like a very high quality tech business in Australia. That's my gut feel. Yeah, I agree. Yeah. So that, that was my thing. This looked like, you know, it, this looked like a global tech, you know, early stage global tech may not be high growth, but, you know, it looked like a global tech business out of Australia, listed here in Australia, you know, putting Atlassian aside. Yeah, that's the unfortunate part. But, you know, the, I, I love the irony. There are two things that you said. I'm going to double click. One is the irony. ASIC might be using Nuix's tools to get behind, to get go after Nuix. That would be the ultimate irony of things and maybe would 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 def, would, def, would define in a way that okay the technology is actually useful and and i think i to double click on one thing that you said actually and you know you you didn't overstate it and you very you know like in the usual self you understated this is very important actually this is a great thing to look for in a business is and it you know there'll be cases like new x where you get it wrong but stuff that gets embedded in the workflow those are really hard to change right i mean and, and yeah embedded in workflow is underrated like just look at you know Excel and you know Microsoft Office, right? It's so embedded that that itself is a door to you know finding other revenues, right? So so I think embedding is really important, very difficult to change. That's really causes stickiness. Well, think about it. if you're a, an auditor, an analyst, or someone looking at cases, you've been trained to use Nuix software, right? It does the heavy lifting for you. Yeah. So how do you then? All, you have to retrain people, which is their core function. How much of an impact is that Expensive. going to have? Or, yeah, oh, it's huge. It's, yeah. it's enormous. Time Assuming that there is something else that can do it in a very similar way or better way, um, which is a whole other question. So I'm just going to end with a, a company to, for people to put on their radar, which is a company called Clean Space, which is a company here in Australia, based out of Sydney, actually, just north of the CBD, and they create masks, positive airway masks that provide protection for frontline workers, typically in hospital environments that may have you know issues with covid and other types of infectious diseases where they need protection um, from that it's you, you i know you know the company but for listeners sake most people are using n95 masks as kind of um, fluffy kind of masks that you put on your face and you might use them for half a day or a day this is a different device that kind of sits around your face come from engineers and designers out of resmed quite a few years ago listed on the asx like newix it's had a hard time it's had a really hard time adjusting to the market. It also does a bit in the industrial side. So if you think if you're in an environment that has kind of hostile um, odors or carcinogenics, anything that's kind of can damage your lungs or airways, um, this is a business that can provide protection. And it basically makes money by selling a $1,000 mask with a consumable on the back, very much like a, a Nanosonics business model, razor and blade for healthcare. The thing for me is that we, we, we haven't recommended this business. And the reason why is we can't really get a handle on exactly where it's at in terms of 
is it break even at this level? Because we've seen this huge, huge influx of demand from COVID, obviously, shortage of masks. They brought masks on. This is how we kind of begun the show with talking about inflation. They brought masks in, up supply. Now we're coming off that that kind of binge on masks while the, the global uh, market is oversupplied, at least with N95s. So how long does it take to come back? It still does a lot of work on the industrial side of its business where it doesn't distribute directly, so for lower margins. But it's a really interesting business. And I think the next quarter is going to tell us if this business is sustainably growing out of COVID. So it's a really interesting business. Uh, clean spaces on the ASX. CSX is the ticket code. You can chuck that on your watch list. And I think it was due to report soon. I don't have the, the date in front of me. 131 mil market cap. So definitely small cap. Um, keep that in mind. But something to, to throw on your watch list. Mate, do you have anything for us or shall we call it a day? I'll give you a quick one. A company that I like on the ASX, um, you know, uh, high risk for sure. A little bit larger than the one you mentioned. Uh, so Big Tin Can, this is a sales enablement technology company headquartered out of uh, here in Sydney and the US. What I like about them is they're growing really quickly, partially aided by by acquisitions, but, you know, that acquisitions are bringing in new modules and then they have cross-sell opportunities, uh, you know, growing about healthy 50, 60%, uh, I believe, of the last report. I think decently priced. I wouldn't say cheap, cheap, but I mean, it's not upper expensive and uh, they've got good partnerships, which is, I think, interesting. They've got some, you know, good telco partnerships. They've got a partnership with CRM, which is Salesforce. Sorry. CRM is the ticket code. Yeah, CRM is the ticket code. So Salesforce is the company. Oh, you know, and again, they put this, the software on uh, on tablets and phones and then they provided the you know, field salespeople and then it helps the salespeople become more productive and useful and, you know, get get things done. This is this is important. And uh, I think the growth sort of shows that. So yeah, something to put on your radar, nice sticky revenue base, fast growing, reasonable, wouldn't say cheap, but not over expensive, reasonable valuation, potentially a large market. And yeah, something to keep an eye on. Can I ask a question on this? Because I have looked at it a bit, because you're, you're, you're a technology guy, right? And I have less of a technology background, but still love it. I, the thing I can't wrap my head around is with its sales enablement software is if you're making so many acquisitions, are they truly complementary? Like, can you, like, I feel like a lot of this stuff isn't always plug and play, right? Do you have any sense of that? No, so it's not plug and play. So I think what is what happens is there are two things that happen. So one is vertical expansion. So maybe you are currently serving, let's say, you know, apparel market, right? And, and you have software that works there. But your technology probably does not work very well in, say, the automotive um, spare parts market or something like that, as an example. So if you have another piece of software that's kind of doing that, then you can buy it. That's, you know, basically gives you vertical expansion and therefore gives you an opportunity to go into different areas. Then you can slowly add some features from yours to theirs and theirs to yours. So there's a cross-pollination opportunity. Then sometimes they acquire things like, sometimes it's just... Uh, a technology acquisition. So like, you know, they have maybe some artificial intelligence or some, you know, some intelligence enabling feature that you acquire that you can then embed that, you know, is a value add feature that makes your tool more valuable to people. So stuff like that. These acquisitions, I mean, this is a, this is an, this is common on the ASX though, right? Like, I mean, a lot of small companies basically come to the market uh, and then they make acquisitions to grow, right? And this is almost like treating the public market as a, as, as a funding source. 
right? Typically, the public market is actually not a funding source, but you know, it's just a, it's a secondary market for exchanging shares. But you know, it, it is a primary uh, market for many of the small caps uh, in terms of like just raising capital. And you can be cynical and say, well, you know, if it's a smart, fast-growing small company, why didn't the venture fund <laughs> continue funding it because there's so much, you know? So there's many answers to that. Sometimes it could be that yes, it's not as good as the other opportunities the venture fund had. That could be one answer. Could be that the venture fund wanted to exit for n number of reasons because you know they've been invested for a while. It's just started taking off. They just you know want to do something else. So they you know many a times it's founder strapped, bootstrapped. In which case the founders want liquidity. Um, many a times it is about giving employees liquidity um, because many people employees get paid in stock. And how do you provide liquidity? You provide that by being in the stock market instead of having like a private market for the stock. So a lot of different reasons. But yeah, the, I would I'd would, I'd say that your question is valid, and it's something to watch because there's like you know every few months there's an acquisition, right? Yeah, and that's you, the thing. You, yeah, <laughs> yeah. But 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 this is but you know I've seen that happen in you know from the food industry to the travel industry, like they're all acquiring something all the time. Sometimes it's just revenue addition. It's arbitrage as well, right? If I can acquire something at you know. 4x sales, but my multiple is like 10x or 20x, <laughs> then I have some arbitrage going on there and my revenue base grows. So a lot of different things. You have to understand the vision and the strategy, right? It's horses for courses in terms of if this is, you know, we're solving problems, how can we best solve the problems? We buy or we build. If it's cheaper to buy, we buy. And, you know, we have talented engineers who can integrate a lot of this stuff and create a better product and cross-sell, et cetera, et cetera. So it's a really interesting business. I'm going to do some more digging on that because I imagine we'll cover it again um, when we catch up. But mate, what can people do if they want to find out about Seven Investing? I want to pitch you guys because I know you're doing a great job and we're going to do this together. Where can people go? You know, seven recommendations every month, right? So tell us about that. Yeah, so they could they could go to seveninvesting.com uh, and you know forward slash subscribe and then they can decide to subscribe or not. Uh, or you know you have a special link that you could share, I guess. Uh, yeah, yeah, for which, sure. yeah, which yeah, the, so the Owen special link gives you, I think, a discount <laughs> to start <laughs> off with, yep. uh, which, which 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 is interesting. Uh, our prices are actually for Seven Investing are going up on the seventh of uh, July. Um, it's getting quick. Actually, sorry. It's getting, yeah, getting 8th of July. So, uh, you know, if somebody wants to sign, uh, but here's the good deal. The deal is that if somebody gets in before that, they actually grandfathered at the existing, you know, $17 per month or $170 a year uh, price sure. instead of it being, you know, so there's there's an opportunity if, if people are interested in, it, it, this is, if you're interested in the US market, then this is something you can look at. These are all US listed uh, stocks. The companies might be headquartered anywhere, but they are US listed companies. So, yeah. Mm. Something. Cool. Don't have to. Yeah. We'll, uh, you know, I'll, I'll still come back here and chat with Owen. <laughs> <laughs> Wonderful, mate. Yeah, great. We love it. So I look forward to the chat next week, mate. Thanks for taking some time out. Look forward to talking with you next week. Cheers. Mm-hmm.